0: How do we survive for 50 years afraid? What does 50 years of fear do to a human being, to a family, to our ability to remember, to grieve, to mourn, to heal?
1: Hello everyone, I'm Lisa Cohen.
2: And I'm Abby Wright. Welcome to the On Assignment podcast, episode three. Imagine what it would be like If you were making a film about the Holocaust and the Germans had won the war, in the tease, you heard filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer describe that very situation in Indonesia, where he made two Oscar nominated films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. He is a unique filmmaker.
1: He tells a story that is both far from our everyday experience and a universal story about power, life and death. It's a difficult story, and this episode is difficult. We didn't really know where to begin ourselves, but the story of the making of the act of killing and the look of silence is one that everyone in the business of journalism, really every human, we think, needs to hear.
2: It's a very complicated story, but the gist of it being hundreds of thousands of people were systematically killed in the 1960s in Indonesia, and family members of those murdered were exiled and shipped out to the hinterlands, And the people who committed these terrible crimes are part of the establishment today. And even they're all living in the same towns and cities right now. So you can imagine losing a a loved one in the 60s, knowing who was responsible for it, and seeing them day in, day out. And in a
1: climate where no one actually can say anything.
2: These acts of violence happen with total impunity. No one has ever been held accountable. There hasn't even been a national conversation about it until now. now. Yeah. yeah. So for this film, The Look of Silence, Joshua
1: Oppenheimer had a partner, basically, and it's the person that we follow through the film. His name is Adi. He's an Indonesian who lost his brother Romney in the violence. He's one of the only people killed in his region of northern Sumatra who actually had a marked grave. When the filming was being done, Adi was living with his family amongst the perpetrators, like so many others. More than the filmmaker himself, Adi puts his life and his family's lives on the line to uncover the truth behind the film. This particular piece of work actually altered a national conversation on a really difficult subject.
2: Yeah, it's a unique behind-the-scenes look. Joshua shared so much with us in the discussion about specific scenes from both of the films— characters from the films and documentary filmmaking techniques that we're going to try to guide this conversation a little bit. So you'll be hearing more from us throughout this episode in order to set things up. And you'll be hearing
1: sounds from the film. Joshua Oppenheimer in this conversation actually speaks specifically to the audio. It's what they call sound design and its importance to him.
2: To learn more about Joshua and his Oscar nominated films, go to our website onassignmentpodcast.org. Joshua told his story
1: in front of a packed audience of our usual Columbia students, and there were also some Indonesians who themselves were impacted by the film.
2: We'll learn what brought Joshua to that part of the world in the first place.
0: Yes, I first went to Indonesia in 2001. I was invited uh, to teach a community of plantation workers how to make their own film, really, about their struggle to organize a union in the aftermath of the Suharto dictatorship, under which unions were effectively illegal. And I was I found myself on a Belgian-owned oil palm plantation in a remote part of North Sumatra where foreigners really never visit. And on this Belgian plantation, the Belgian company made the women workers do the supposedly lighter work of spraying the pesticides and the herbicides, but they would give them no protective clothing. And when I arrived, I discovered that the women or would expect to die in their 40s. They would get liver disease, liver failure, and they would die. We would steal labels from the pesticide and herbicide containers, and, which the workers were really afraid to do. I mean, there was that much fear around. To go to the internet cafes, which had very slow connections in 2001, and type in the name of these chemicals and try and figure out what was killing the workers and we discovered one herbicide in particular that was responsible so the workers demanded or asked the company for protective clothing and the company responded by hiring Panchasila Youth, the paramilitary organization in the center of the act of killing to threaten and attack the workers who dropped their demands immediately explaining to me, well you see my, our pa- there was a mass killing here in 1965, our parents and grandparents were members of the National Plantation Workers Union, as were all the workers on Indonesia's plantations. And for that alone they were seen, in this, at least in that region, as likely opponents of the new military regime that was coming to power, and they were put in concentration camps and a great many of them killed. And they said, "We're, af- we're so we're going to drop our demands because we're afraid this could happen to us again, because Pancasila Youth is still powerful, and they were the main organization to carry out the killings in this region the ar- under, the, under the direction of the army, and in, in this moment I remember thinking what's really killing these workers is not just poison, but also fear. And I felt like, well, we are consumers of this fear, that when we purchase anything made with palm oil from Indonesia, whether it's uh, skin cream or soap or potato chips or now biofuels, we are purchasing this fear.
1: So when the plantation workers finished making their film, they say to Joshua, now you should make a film about us.
2: Right, they say it's his turn, and ask him to make a film about why 40 years on, people in that community in Sumatra are still afraid.
1: And he feels like it's an invitation that he has to accept. He actually feels implicated by what he heard, and he can't let the story go.
0: I did come back in early 2003 and right away was introduced to Ramli's family, uh, Rohani and Rukun, Hadi's parents first, because Ramli was the only victim in the region who had a, na- a marked grave. Everyone else, tens of thousands of people, had either been dumped in rivers and their families never told what happened, or dumped in mass graves. And 10,500 people were killed at Snake River alone, according to the, the documents that I was able to find at the National Security Archive in Washington, D.C. And none of those victims' families were told what happened, which meant that they couldn't grieve. They couldn't work through their grief. They couldn't, that is to say, do the work of mourning. And so they would just say they haven't come home yet. I suppose in the the, the ever-fading, but never quite vanishing hope that one day they would. And so Romley, had become, over the decades, synonymous with the genocide as a whole. So it was inevitable I was introduced to his parents. I fell in love with Rohani right away, uh, Romley's mother, and she wanted me to meet Adi, saying, to understand what we lost, to understand what we went through, you must meet Adi because he looks like Romley, acts like Romley. She sees him, saw him, it seemed, almost as a reincarnation of Romley. And she called him to this, the village, and, of course, I met a man who never knew Romley, and who was very gentle and brilliant and resourceful. The survivors in Indonesia, if you were related to a victim or to a political prisoner, you were officially designated as coming from an unclean background, was the designation. And, so, and, and this meant you were not allowed to go to, certainly not allowed to go to university, and in that region, for at least, it meant that, for the most part, you couldn't go to high school either. You couldn't, didn't have access to decent jobs, you couldn't be part of the government healthcare program, even. And so, for Adi to become an optometrist was an extraordinary accomplishment for someone from such a village, for a survivor from such a village. And he was desperate to understand what had happened. He knew the story of Romley's death, which his mother, as he would put it, would say, morning, noon, and night. And so he latched onto my filmmaking. Adi then started to gather survivors to tell me their stories. And in three weeks, the army came and threatened every one of them and told them not to participate in the film. And then they called me to a midnight meeting in Adi's parents' home, in the home where the film just ended, and said, please don't give up, you're here, you speak the language, try to film the perpetrators. And that was a frightening thought to me. I approached the perpetrators and and shot much of the early footage that Adi's watching in the look of silence. And of course the survivors wanted to see that footage because they'd sent me to shoot it. And when they did, they said immediately, you must continue to film the perpetrators. You're onto something so important. Because anyone who hears the way they're speaking will be forced to acknowledge that in a terrible way, the genocide hasn't really ended. Because although the killings have ended, uh, survivors are still living in fear. Millions of people's lives are being destroyed by fear. And I remembered, of course, the plantation workers who I felt were still dying as a result of this.
1: So Joshua realizes that the repercussions of the killings are still playing out in Indonesian society 40 years later.
2: Right. So he spends the next two years filming every perpetrator he can find, working his way up the chain of command.
1: And at the end of making his first film, and after connecting with Adi's family, Joshua gives Adi a small camera to use as kind of a notebook. And then Adi sends Joshua those
2: tapes. Right, meanwhile, in one of the most surreal moments of both of these films, in my opinion, Joshua films these two former death squad leaders on a beautiful summer's day. They're strolling along and they're on the banks of this river where they had helped kill thousands of people. And they actually stop along the riverbank to smell the flowers. That's when Joshua says he knows that there's a second film to be made. <laughs>
0: I thought, my God, it's like I've wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust if the Nazis had never been removed from power, and if the rest of the world, or at least the victorious side in World War II, had celebrated and even participated in the Holocaust, which accounts for their shamelessness in front of me, as an American. And I, that evening, went home and thought, there must be two films. One about the lies, the fantasies of the perpetrators, uh, about ultimately a film about escapism and guilt which is really what I think the act of killing is about and the second film about what it does to survivors to have to live in such a society how do we survive for 50 years afraid What does 50 years of fear do to a human being to a family to our ability to remember to grieve to mourn to heal
2: it's no accident that when you're watching this film you fall under its spell
1: It's about the sound design, and Joshua tells us all exactly how deliberate it was.
0: The act of killing's director's cut is punctuated again and again by these abrupt cuts to silence. Every sequence ends in one. And these are shifts in the perspective from the perpetrators to the absent dead. And I felt making a look of silence that I wanted to bring all of you into any one of those haunted silences that punctuate the director's cut of the act of killing, and really make you feel or imagine what would it be like to have to live there, to rebuild a life there, uh, as a survivor surrounded by the still powerful perpetrators. And that the landscapes in the two films are the one part of the film or the one, the one part of the films that were shot at the same time. For the most part, I shot some more when I went back for the look of silence. And I took out, in the look of silence, all of the sound. And I put back in, over the landscape shots, layers of... There's some, pa- there's some sounds from things you see if you see a motorcycle pass, you hear it, but you hear it after you see the motorcycle, and very faintly, which is not how sound comes to you in the world. It's kind of inversion of the order of the world, which is, maybe would approximate the experience of a dream. where things come to you. You know how there's a kind of continuous present tense in a dream? Something happens and you feel, oh, that's happening. So you see a motorcycle and then, oh yeah, there's a motorcycle and you hear the sound. So I, I, I use the sound in that way, but above all, I layered those landscapes with 16, I worked with 16 tracks of cricket sound, which we played like a symphony in different combinations depending on the, the shot. For me it's the chorus of the dead. And the, we meet Rohani, the first voice we hear from Adi's family is Adi's mother. And we meet her through her voice. Mama and she's talking to one of those ghosts. And three more times in the film we come to her when she's talking mama. We first encounter, through that shot of the trucks, a haunted landscape, the swarming of ghosts that's inevitable when the dead have not been buried, have not been mourned. Then they they are abroad, among us, and then we meet a family that's in dialogue with one of those ghosts. And when I finished editing The Act of Killing, but before it had its first screening, which was crucial because I knew once the film had its first screening, I wouldn't be able to return safely to Indonesia for some time, I returned to make the look of silence. And Adi said to me right away that I've spent seven years watching your footage of the perpetrators and it's changed me. And I need to meet the man who killed my brother. And I said right away, absolutely not. It's too dangerous. There's never before been a film where survivors confront perpetrators who still hold a monopoly on power. There have been films where they meet, but it's always in places where perpetrators are out of power, at least largely. And I said, we cannot, we cannot do this. And Adi took out that camera that I'd given him and a tape, and he said, let me explain why this matters. I'm so sorry I never gave you this tape, but it's very personal to me, he said. And he put it in the camera, and on the little flip screen proceeded to show me the one scene in the look of silence that Adi shot and it's the scene that came right at the end where his father's crawling through the house calling for help and he said he immediately started to cry and while talking through his tears he said this was the first day my dad couldn't remember anyone one in the family but my dad was crawling through the house calling for help confused and we would try and help him but because he's nearly deaf, nearly blind, in order to, we would have to put our, we'd have to touch him to get his attention. And he would shriek with fear. At some point, he couldn't stand just watching his father crawling about, calling for help. And it was too painful, and so he just thought, I'll use the camera to sort of protect myself from this, to focus on something else while I'm here for him. And he said the moment he started filming, he understood why he was filming. He said, my father's forgotten the son whose murder has destroyed my family's life, and his life, but he can't forget the fear, and now he'll never be able to heal because he can't work through what happened. We watched the scene play out in silence, and then he turned to me and said, you see, I don't want my children to inherit this from my father, my mother, and from me. And as a parent, he said, I owe it to them to try to visit the people we've been living amongst who are afraid of, and to reconcile our families. If they're able to acknowledge what they did, I can forgive.
2: So this is what the film is ultimately about, right? It's about forgiveness.
1: Oppenheimer has this very complex way of getting there. In his view, you have to show both sides as human beings. You do it when you're making the film, and you do it when you're showing the film to the audience. And that allows everybody to bridge what he calls this abyss of fear and guilt.
0: It's very simple. Empathy is not a zero-sum game. If you empathize with the perpetrators, it doesn't mean you have less empathy for the survivors. In fact, if you care for the survivors, you should, try, you should take seriously our obligation to try to understand how human beings do, do this to each other instead of simply condemning the perpetrators and pretending that that condemnation is comprehension. At first, you know, I'm filming people telling monstrous stories, about monstrous things they've done, in monstrous ways. And you're looking, of course, for monsters. And again and again I felt, I'm, there, I'm not finding monsters. They're ordinary people. And I came to mind was what Primo Levi said, that there may be monsters among us, speaking of the, whole, the perpetrators he encountered when he was in concentration camps. He said, there may be monsters among us, but they're too few to worry about and what we really have to worry about are the ordinary people like ourselves. I started to realize that, you know, if the survivors were plucked from their context, all of the survivors, and uh, placed in the shoes of the perpetrators, and vice versa, the survivors would would probably, on the whole, be just as terrible as the perpetrators, and the perpetrators would be just as lovely as the survivors. The perpetrators lived their life, all of them, I think, in manic flight from a pall of guilt and shame that follows them everywhere they go and they outrun it by day. But when they stop to sleep at night it catches up to them and it gets into their dreams and gives them unspeakable nightmares. But because they've never been removed from power they still have available to them a victor's history which justifies what they've done. Part of the task of understanding how human beings do this to each other is also to understand how human beings live with themselves after they do this to each other. The boasting is part of the mechanism of fear in this society. Motivated perhaps by guilt, in part, and by therefore the perpetrator's humanity, then humanity, morality, here becomes part of the mechanism of evil. And then I realized from this that you can't divide the self into good parts and bad parts, good guys and bad guys, the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other. That's a fiction. So once you cross that threshold, and do something truly awful. Guilt no longer prevents us from hurting each other, it can become part of the problem. And that, that was a very important realization because it meant that I had to understand these people as human, no matter how frightening that would be.
1: To try to get to this point, what it means is that Joshua is becoming very close to people who had killed and had the power to commit that kind of violence again. And he was doing this while he was also spending all this time with Adi, who was putting his life on the line.
2: He tells us that he spoke to over 40 paramilitary leaders, including one of them, Anwar Congo, in order to connect with these guys and to bring out their version of events of what had happened in the 1960s. He forms friendships with them.
0: The most dangerous was surely with the paramilitary leader who was playing the keyboard at the beginning Amir Siaha'an, Haan and said he should be given a cruise to America, because America taught him to hate and kill the communists. That was the most dangerous because, you know, he, he had a cadre of thugs guarding the house, uh, whom he could have called upon at any time to attack us. We always had a getaway car for Adi so that if he uh, so that he would be able to. Leave before everybody. As soon as we were done shooting, hopefully unbeknownst to the perpetrator, and we'd have Adi's family at the airport with their with bags packed, and we had to work quickly because word could spread. And every evening, in fact, I had to go back and spend the evening with Anwar Congo because if word did spread, the first person to be told would be Anwar Congo, and I felt actually bad because Anwar and I remain are still to this day close. Anwar saw the act of killing and was tearful, and he said, Joshua, this film shows what it's like to be me. And he and I continue to be in touch every few weeks, maybe every month now. He was a little bit like the canary in the coal. He was, that was our early warning signal of some word had spread. And So
1: Joshua isn't the only one who empathizes with the perpetrators. More, even more astounding is the fact that this victim is able to do that. Adi, his main subject.
2: He actually uses his role as an optometrist. He's caring for them and uses his role as an optometrist to develop relationships with the people who otherwise he might not have been able to speak to them.
1: And it's this great metaphor and a device where, because he's, they're optometrists, he has to stare at them very, very closely in the eyes. He's gazing into their soul and uses it as an opportunity to get them to open up and tell him things. So in many ways he's the perfect partner for Joshua.
0: I think that with something as dangerous as this, I would not have agreed to do it if there was with anyone else. Because of course if he was hot-headed and easily angered or very passionate, he's calm. If anything any other demeanor would have made this too dangerous and um, I, Adi told me that he started to confront, uh, sorry, that he started to look for older patients. I saw how he did it and I saw that even when those meetings was with the old woman at the beginning were tense, they were still intimate because it's he's testing her eyes. And I realized that would uh, create this instant physical intimacy and a space thereby, there, thereby where the perpetrators were likely to feel comfortable opening up to Adi about what they'd done so that Adi would never have to do to them What I did in the last scene, where I show them the footage, where Adi would have, he would never have to say, I know what you did because of what Joshua filmed. I've seen his footage. Which would, of course, make them feel attacked, and they would feel uh, trapped, and there, there 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 would be no possibility for the reconciliation that Adi was hoping for. So the eye test was this thing that he could prolong, for as long as necessary until all the facts came out. Adi goes out there like a one-man truth and reconciliation process, and he fails because truth and reconciliation can never be a one-man process. It's It's a collective national, it's a collective political, national, social process that has to happen in every village, and we feel when he fails the absence of what's needed for him to succeed and we long for it. screenings of the act of killing were in secret and they were held in, at the National Human Rights Commission for Indonesia's leading journalists, filmmakers, historians, uh, human rights activists. One of the journalists at the very first screening, in fact, was the editor of Indonesia's leading news magazine, Tempo Magazine. And he phoned me the next day and said, I saw your film last night, and he said, I've been censoring stories about the genocide for as long as I've been in this job, and I won't do it anymore because I don't want to become, to grow old as a perpetrator like the men in your film. And he said, we're going to break our silence on the genocide in in a big way. And he sent 60 journalists around the country immediately, like right away, to search for perpetrators who would boast. And everywhere they went, in regions of the country where no one had ever documented the killings before, the journalists would enter a neighborhood and ask who was the local, who was killing here in 1965. And everyone knew because like in, the villages of North Sumatra, the perpetrators had been boasting ever since. And the journalists gathered in two weeks over a thousand pages of testimony from perpetrators. They, edit, they, they published 75 pages of this material, 25 pages about the act of killing in a double edition of the magazine. that came out in October 2012. And in one fell swoop, really, the mainstream media's silence on the genocide ended. It was a very brave thing of tempo to do. It was almost newsworthy in and of itself, and I think they, uh, they won a major human rights award for that double, double edition of Temple magazine.
2: So this led to many other major news outlets in Indonesia covering the issue and changed the way people talked about the mass murders. Joshua says people are now finally talking about the killings as a crime against humanity.
1: There were something like 2,000 screenings of the film in the country itself, and he says it's been downloaded millions of times.
0: And when the film was nominated for an Oscar, uh, the president's spokesman, the former president, Susilo Bambang Yudu his spokesman said, look, we know what happened in 1965 was a crime against humanity. We need truth and reconciliation, but we don't need a film to push us to do this. It was was a wonderful moment because the government was admitting it was wrong. And then a month later or so, after the Oscars were over, we had a rough cut of the, the, the look of silence and we all met in Thailand me, because I still couldn't return to Indonesia safely, me, uh, Adi's family, the team that released the act of killing in Indonesia and some of the crew, I showed the film and I asked should we not release the film because it's uh, until either the perpetrators have died or until there's been more change in Indonesia, or should we release the film and uh, Adi and his family, you'd have to, if we do that, I think you'd have to move to Denmark where I'm based and we showed the film and right afterwards Adi's family said the film has to come out now we shouldn't lose the momentum from the act of killing we shouldn't let the silence return this will keep the conversation growing about a year ago November 10th last year the film had its premiere in Indonesia whereas the act of killing began its life in secret the first screenings of the look of silence were public and hosted by two government bodies the National Human Rights Commission and the Jakarta Arts Council they were held in Indonesia's largest theater A venue for about 1,500 people. Twice there were billboards around Jakarta announcing the screening. All of this was unimaginable for the act of killing, at least at the beginning. Um, 3,000 people came. Adi came as a surprise guest and received like a 15-minute standing ovation from the audience that just couldn't believe that he did what he did. In that moment, Uh, trending on Twitter in Indonesia and therefore around the world because Indonesia is the world's largest Twitter using country was today we have a new national hero and his name is Adi Rukun over the coming months there's now been over 4,000 screenings of the film based on the reports of the organizers of those screenings about 350,000 people have attended the screenings and yet uh, that has provoked a kind of backlash the army pressured the film Censorship Board in Indonesia, which is under the Defense Committee of the Parliament. Now imagine if the ratings agency that decides if a film should be PG-13 was under the Senate Armed Services Committee. It sounds wrong. <laughs> yes. Actually, what it sounds like is totalitarianism. And so the military's hired thugs uh, to threaten to attack screening after screening. And then using that, having hired the thugs, they then go to the screening organizers and say, we're sorry, there's threats of attack, we can't guarantee your safety. That continued until a group of students at a university in Yogyakarta in central Java uh, barricaded themselves into the university, went ahead with the screening and received such positive coverage that the military backed off. But then on October 1st, the 50th anniversary of the start of the genocide, the military went on the offensive again and cancelled event after event dedicated to talking about the 1965 genocide. This has only raised awareness and created an angry response.
1: This is a great lesson in involving the community in the reporting itself and the power that that has, particularly in this case, to propel an important story.
2: Yeah, it had a kind of snowball effect you know the journalism cliche, of course, that great reporting shines a light in dark places, but it's actually happening in Indonesia as a result of these films.
1: But so many people around the world actually don't know much about this story.
0: The reason it's it's so poorly remembered is the story was inconvenient. The US was increasing its involvement in Vietnam at the time and selling that to the American people by talking about the domino theory, saying that communism would spread across Southeast Asia. And the big domino in Southeast Asia was Indonesia. Indonesia has most of the population, most of the resources. It straddles all the shipping lanes between Europe and Asia. And it's, of course, Australia's northern border. And from 1965 onwards, early in the Vietnam War, the Indonesian domino was bolted firmly upright. It was not going to fall. There was no uh, political left remaining in the country. It wasn't covered because it wasn't convenient. The government wasn't talking about it. And when the government doesn't talk about something in this country, the media doesn't cover it. And I think we have to recognize that this film is not just about dealing with the terrible consequences of Indonesian history, but also American history. There's many anonymous collaborators, but one of them I've credited as a co-director and that's because he, he was my assistant director, my production manager, my second camera person, but above all, my main creative dialogue partner during the making of both films. And I think I came to realize that it was that dialogue that makes this, an authentic, to Indonesians, an authentic work of Indonesian cinema, which makes, makes it not a, str- a work made from a stranger's eye view. Uh, but actually which uh, we, but, but actually a work of Indonesian cinema, and I thought that was terribly important. And so I credited him as anonymous. He's someone who gave, I should say, ten years of his life, initially taking a six-month sabbatical from his work. Uh, I won't reveal what his job was, but a six-month sabbatical. And he spent ten years working on this because he felt it was that important, risking his safety, knowing he couldn't take credit for his work until there's real political change in Indonesia and he's become like a second family to me and I wish more than anything that I could re-release the film with new end credits where every person's name is there. I've said that these two films are my love letters to Indonesia and I really mean it. I love Indonesia but this film is for Indonesia. I think the reaction from younger Indonesians has been brilliant, incisive, passionate people go to a movie and they find out that they've been lied to in school, it makes them angry, they question their parents, they question why they're now uh, either having children or expect soon soon to have children, why they should send their children to school to be lied to. It's a very... I think that I've been inordinately impressed by Indonesian's response to these films. And, you know, in terms of the change while I was shooting, When I started, at least in the area I was filming, Indonesians barely had mobile phones in 2001. And by the end, everyone was on Twitter and Facebook and on their iPhone and their Blackberry. And it's hard to uh, stay confident that you're on the right path when it takes 10 years to do a project. And I would think to myself often, well, Indonesians are moving on. Why aren't I moving on? They won't care about this anymore (laughs) when the film comes out. And yet, I think because time passed, the reaction has been what it was. I think a younger generation has, is, has come and is coming into positions of leadership in the society and they don't... I see a lot of Indonesians here. How many of you are Indonesian? Yeah, oh, wow. So you're not, you know, you're neither traumatized by what happened in 1965, nor are you complicit with the new order. And that's a very powerful position to be in. That, leaves your mind free of guilt and fear so that you can question. And I, I've been very touched by how so many of you refuse to squander the freedom that comes with that strength.
2: Thank you to Joshua Oppenheimer. We had people in the audience, Indonesians, who had lost loved ones in the massacres, and they connected with Joshua after the conversation, which was so moving to hear them talking.
1: Yeah, they approached him, and they spoke to him in Bahasa, and he answered them, and there were tears, and there were hugs. It was really very emotional.
0: Okay,
2: Lisa, time for a quick round of recommendations where we talk about what we've been watching and what we've been enjoying. I want to tell you about a series I've been watching on Showtime called The Circus about this year's political season um, brought to us by longtime political reporters Mark Halperin and John Heileman, as well as Mark McKinnon, former Bush advisor. I've been enjoying seeing the campaign trail going behind the scenes, meeting the operatives and all the staffers who make these events happen, seeing the candidates in more informal settings... And it's all cut in a really fast-paced, almost reality TV style, but uh, I've been finding it both informative and entertaining, so I do recommend it. What have you seen lately? It's not
1: what I've seen. It's what I'm planning to see this weekend. Uh, the HBO just started airing the Nora Ephron documentary, Everything is Copied, that was made by her son Jacob Bernstein, and it just sounds absolutely fascinating. I saw the trailer for it. I totally—they had me at hello.
2: That's it for this episode.
1: On Assignment is produced by Asta Chattervedi. Thanks, as always, to our funders of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, to Columbia, and to our stellar fellows, Dan Litke, Erica Glass, and Laura Brickman. Our music is by Dylan Nowick.
2: And thanks to our sound engineer, Shep Birkin. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and let us know what you think in a review on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well.
1: Until next time, everybody.